Huh? People coming in all different times, weirdness going on, uh, settling in the new times. God is good. Hey, so everybody knows we finished phase two, right? Cafes open, upstairs, kids church, everything going on. Wonderful, wonderful things God is doing. Uh, but as a dad on Father's Day, I got to tell you, we got to actually pay for it. Isn't that a drag? So uh, I've been giving you these updates and look here, we're down to 400,000. We're down to 400,000. That was like 1.5 million uh, somewhere in January, 600,000 about two months ago. We are steaming ahead, getting really close. August 26th is the day we like fall off the map or have to borrow money and we don't want to borrow money. We would love to do ministry the way we're doing and have this all paid for. So those of you who make commitments or are thinking about uh, contributing, look, we already delivered. You already see what's going on in all those venues. Take a walk upstairs. Uh, all our visitors are just amazed at how we built a building to get smaller and to know one another. So uh, please do your best to be generous in the coming uh, months to get this paid off for. J-Kids Camp, this whole place will look like a Lego, giant Lego factory. Uh, tomorrow's the last day for early registration, so make sure you get out on the web or do something in the atrium after the service, and we still need volunteers. If moms are off or dads are off during the week, um, we can use a hand. We think it's one of the best camps around. So open your Bibles to Colossians with me. Brand new book of the Bible. Chance for you to get a commentary, read ahead, read with us, learn, grow. We move through the Bible. Uh, good stuff. Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 9. Paul writes this, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed or transferred is a better idea us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, look at verse 15. He, personal pronoun, speaking of Jesus, is the image of, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him, and he's before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That means the first of many. There'll be a rank and file after him. That's good news for us. That in all things, he might have the preeminence. Man, there's a lot in those verses. We, we could spend a month, and maybe we will, I don't know. Uh, there is so much to impact in these verses, this is holy ground. These are glorious, glorious verses. Most of you know Paul wrote 13 of the 21 New Testament letters. He was writing the churches. He had no idea he was writing the Bible. Holy men were moved by the Holy Spirit, right? It was inspired of God. God used men. Uh, every once in a while, you should probably pick up a book 
on how the Bible came to be, how God used man. It's a wonderful study. But Paul would write these letters, and they have, they have dominant themes in them. You know, so sometimes Paul would write because there was great persecution under the Roman Empire, so he would write to encourage believers. Sometimes he would correct heresy in the early church. And then sometimes it was just plain doctrine. He would teach them about the resurrection or baptism or some of the things we hold dear to ourselves today. But in all the letters, Paul was writing because he loved the churches. He loved people. He told the Galatians that I labor time and time again until Christ be formed in you. Spiritual formation, fully devoted followers of Christ. Paul knew the power there was in following Christ, and he wanted them to live in the reality of it. So as we go through these books, God should be doing something in our fellowship. For instance, when we, when we studied Ephesians, we were reminded of who we were, and here's the key phrase, in Christ. Um, God blessed us with every spiritual blessing in high places in Christ. We have this inheritance. So we learned in Ephesians this glorious inheritance we have. So as we live as a church body, we should grow in that. We just studied Philippians. Uh, the theme of Philippians was joy. We should become a more joyful people. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always, and I say rejoice. Wednesday night, um, a woman was baptized. You have to be careful giving a microphone to people, right? And she said, you know, I've been coming to this church as a media theater, but I've chosen to be baptized now. She said, when your church was in media, you guys were unfriendly. Now, all of a sudden, you're in this building. You're also friendly. So I don't know if it's because of Philippians that we studied. It's the water. I don't know what it is. But we should grow in our joy is the idea. When we look at Colossians, the theme jumps right off the page. Specifically these verses, 15 to 18, these four verses, Paul uses a personal pronoun for Jesus eight times. By him all things were created. Through him all things were created. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of creation, first to rise from the dead. And listen, he's above all things. And the signature verse is verse 18, that he might have the preeminence. In other words, if he's above all things, he's first. He has the preeminence in all things. So what we're going to unpack in Colossians is Jesus is all you need and Jesus is enough. Some of you are looking at me like, well, isn't that what we always talk about? Jesus is all I need, Jesus is enough. Yeah, we talk about it in theory. But I wonder where we are in practice. And here's what I mean by this. Hebrew says we have to give the more earnest heed lest we drift. You ever go in the ocean and you're talking to somebody and you ride a few waves and then all of a sudden you realize you're two blocks away? You know, you drift really slow. So here's, here's what happens. You know, you become a Christian, you're fired up, you're passionate. You became a Christian because you hit the end of the road. You realize everything else doesn't work and Jesus was like that man who found a field and went and sold everything he had to buy that field for the treasure that was in it. And you were zealous and you were passionate and you drove people nuts because Jesus was all you needed. Then you began to learn a few things. Then it was Jesus plus the certain church I go to, Jesus plus this doctrine, this relationship, this movement, Jesus plus Calvary Chapel, Jesus plus Reformed Theology, Jesus plus the gifts of the Spirit, Jesus plus casting demons out, Jesus plus being baptized in Jesus' name only. And, and on and on we go and all of a sudden, we realize somewhere along the way I lost my first love. I lost the passion. I lost the zeal. I got caught up in churchianity, not Christianity. And Colossians brings us back to the centrality and the supremacy of the one we followed in the beginning, that Christ is our all in all. He's above all things, and he's all that we need. 
And Paul is, he's so passionate about this because he knows any other life is to be cheated. To live for anything else is to be cheated. Look what he writes in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, beware. Whenever you see beware in the Bible, that means this could happen to you and probably will. Beware lest anyone cheat you. How would they cheat you? Through philosophy, empty deceit, the traditions of men, the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you're complete in him. You don't need to read the secret. The truth has been revealed to you. You're complete in him. You don't need the latest, newest doctrine. There's nothing new under the sun. If it's new, it's probably not true. If it's true, it's probably not new. Jude said he delivered to us once and for all what the saints knew in the early church. You're complete in him. This book is life-giving. It's full of truth, and the truth does what? It sets you free. Paul goes on about legalism. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Don't let anyone judge you in food or drink or festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. They're all a shadow. We have the reality. We, we don't need high holy days. We don't need special church services. We have the reality. We have Christ. Verse 21, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle all these rules. Uh, chapter 3, there's neither Greek, verse 11, nor Jew or circumcised. We're all one in Christ. No one has any greater rank. We're all one in Christ. doesn't matter what we do, where we came from. And then I love, and I'm just giving you a little overview here. I love how he ends it in chapter 4, verse 16. He said, when this letter is read among you, see that it's also read to the church at Laodicea. Anybody remember what the church at Laodicea in the book of Revelation is characterized by? Lukewarm. They were lukewarm. And how do you get lukewarm? You take something very hot, like our passion for Christ, and you slowly introduce cool, things that are cool. And by the way, there's a lot of cool things in the church, right? A lot of clever, cool things going on. And it brings lukewarmness. It brings your passion down. And so as we go through the book of Colossians, we're going to look at the supremacy of Christ. We're going to be reminded that he's above all things, that he's all that we need. And Paul starts out with the greatest doctrine of the church, and that's the doctrine of creation. Right on the first page, he's, he's above all things, he created all things, he was the agent of creation. This doctrine is so glorious, it's on the first page of your Bible, the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, right out of the gate, John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here's the problem I have as a pastor and a church leader. We are seeding this doctrine away as we bow to the altar of science and academia. This is one of the great doctrines of the church, and we're giving it away. We're giving it away so we can have the right standing among those people who have alternate views. Now, when we think of creation, we think of the Father God, right? God created the heavens and the earth. But I think I walked you through a couple weeks ago, in the beginning, God, Elohim, is the plural Hebrew of God. So in the beginning, gods, not many gods, but the plurality of God. So a trinity is in view, very early in Scripture. Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, and then the case builds. 
But here in Colossians, we see the Christology of creation. Jesus, the Son of God, his part. The Spirit of God brooding over the waters. Jesus' part is, verse 16, for by him all things were created, whether in heaven or earth. Now I want to read for you Proverbs 8. You don't need to turn there right now. Um, And scholars disagree on this. They say, well, this could be the personification of wisdom, or it could be Jesus Christ. I believe it's Jesus Christ. It's one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Proverbs 8, 22 says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. Before his works of old, I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning before there was even an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, the writer of Proverbs thousands of years ago knew the earth was round. When he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters could not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was in the sons of men, Jesus, the agent of creation, side by side with the Father God, the Spirit brooding over the waters, involved in the creation of the world. Glorious verses. Jesus, the agent of creation. He's before all things. So Colossians, though small, gives us a great apologetic, a great polemic of not only the supremacy of Christ above all things. Remember Philippians, he divested himself, came down the ladder, and God has given him the name above all names. Not only does he have the supremacy, but Paul tells us that he is equal with God. And it's all wrapped around this idea of creation. Can I tell you how important creation is to us? Um, Romans says it's so important that the natural man is without excuse before God. That's amazing. In other words, if God never delivered a Bible, human beings are still accountable to a holy God because of the natural world, the created world he's given us. Romans says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and godhood. Uh, To show you how important this was, uh, if you study the sermons in the book of Acts, uh, many times when they were speaking to Jews, they would talk about Abraham or Moses, but any time in the book of Acts where someone is speaking to pagan culture, They always invoke the God of creation. Paul in Acts 17, when he gets to Mars Hill, he says to the people at the Areopagus, he says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So you are ignorant of this very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. The God of creation, the God who made the world and everything in it, does not uh, dwell in temples made with men's hands. Last summer, I was in Alaska, and we were going up a hike to a grand waterfall, and somewhere midway, the ranger stopped the group, and there were some benches there that were carved out of wood. They were wonderfully crafted, 
And there were two women sitting there, and they were marveling at these benches. Oh, my gosh, they would look great in my garden or great on my porch. And I kind of entered their conversation. If anybody knows me, hangs around me, I like enter conversations. And I said, uh, you know, they are beautiful benches. And someone made them. I said, but you know what's more marvelous to me? That tree that's next to you and that waterfall in the distance and that rock right there, like somebody made that too. And they're like, is this guy another ranger? Who is this guy? <laughs> and, and we get so sucked into this idea of the things that were made, we forget the things that we see. Last night, full moon, I was looking on my deck. Full moon, glorious moon. Do you know how many moons fit in a sun? 64 million. Take that one to the bank. 64 million moons fit in our sun. Yet, last night where the moon was, in the daytime, if you're on the beach, when the sun's in that spot, it's the same size. And you're thinking, big deal. Well, big deal. That perspective is amazing. It's almost like we were designed to have that view of the greater light and the lesser light. Most analysts will tell you our planet is very average and normal. There's nothing spectacular about it. What they will tell you is we are the privileged planet because of our viewing of things. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day by day they're uttering speech. Night unto night they're revealing knowledge. And there is no language where it can't be heard. I've been to the Grand Canyon with Japanese, Chinese, French, German. No one speaking a lick of English. Everyone looking at a canyon in awe. Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, said, when you stand at the Grand Canyon, there's almost something in you that propels you to worship until you understand it's all here by chance and accident. Day by day, other forth of speech. Doesn't know what language. We, it doesn't matter where you grew up, where you live, we are a ball floating through space with everything fine-tuned. If we were a little closer to the sun, we would burn. If we were a little farther away, we'd freeze. If we didn't have our moon, there would be no sea level. We'd be flooded out. And you can go down the list to a thousand anthropic principles of things that have to work right for this whole shooting match to work. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth is handiwork. The line is going out through the earth. And the psalmist said, they're words to the ends of the world. When I go to Florida in the winter... We go to the beach, and everybody's there with wine and cheese, throwing Frisbees. They have all their little dogs, and, and, and they're waiting for the sun to set. And the sun goes down, and it goes down, and finally it disappears, and they all clap. And then I turn to my wife, and I'm saying, who are they clapping to? What are they clapping for? You know, that's, to me, the secularist, as smart as they claim to be. What they're really telling us is there's nothing there, Right? You know, give a big hand clap. Nothing's there. Isn't that wonderful? It's amazing. I like one person said, when you're an atheist, when things go well, when you look at sunsets and things go well in your life, who do you thank? There's no one to thank. The beautiful thing is, we know who to thank. We know the painter of the heavens. We know the one who makes daisies and flowers. And yet we're giving it away. We're bowing to the altar of science. So what I want to do this morning is I want to jump out of Colossians. I want to talk to you about creation, and then I'm going to come back to Colossians, and I think when we put it all together, you'll be very inspired. There are four views of creation. There is actually ten, but I don't want to nitpick. I'll talk about these four. When we talk about creation, we're not talking about creationism. Whenever you hear that term, that's a derogatory term given 
I don't know, by secular media or someone to say that we're small-minded and backwards. We're creationists, right? We're talking about creation. So here's the four views. Young earth creation. Young earth creation believes that God created the world in six literal days in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, rested on the seventh. He made the world out of nothing. The earth is relatively young by the standards of 4.6 billion years. Uh, roughly 10,000 years old. And Adam and Eve and everything in Genesis 1 and 2 are historical. Old earth creation says God created the world from nothing but in six spans or epochs of time, they could have been millions or billions of years old, hence the universe is billions of years old, and there may be an Adam and Eve, literally, I'll talk about that in a few minutes. And then theistic evolution says that God used natural selection or evolution to deliver us what we now see. That process took billions of years, he guided the process, and we are the result of random chance and natural selection. Intelligent design is gaining steam. These are people like Philip Johnson, Daniel Dennett, Michael Behe, profound molecular biologists, physicists who are saying, wait a second, things are way too complex. With the, with, with the science we know now, the Hubble telescope, um, DNA, things are way too complex to not have been designed. We don't know who the designer is, we're not religious, uh, but we think there is a designer. And those are the four views. Now, I am a young earth creationist. I believe in a young earth. And I want to give you four reasons why I am, and I want to tell you why they matter. You need to know this. Number one, biblical interpretation. Norman Geisler has a book called When Critics Ask. He said there's no demonstrated contradiction of fact between Genesis 1 and science. So, Rest, you're, you're in good ground. There's only a conflict of interpretation. Either most modern scientists are wrong in insisting the world is billions of years old, or else some Bible interpreters are wrong, insisting in only 144 hours of creation from several thousand years before Christ with no gaps allowing for millions of years. But in either case, it's not a question of the inspiration of Scripture, but of the interpretation of Scripture and the scientific Data. When you read the Bible, and Bible interpretation is important, it's called hermeneutics. When you read the Bible, you read it like any other form of literature. You read it in the historical, literal, grammatical reading until it tells you otherwise. So when Jesus said the kingdom of God is like ten virgins or like a mustard seed, I know he's given me a metaphor. When I read apocalyptic literature about wheels in the middle of the wheel and four living creatures, I, I, I know those are visions and dreams and I read it that way. Now, when we get to Genesis 1 and 2, there are men who I love and appreciate and our bookstores filled with their books who hold a different view. John Lennox, Francis Collins, Tim Keller. Uh, look at Genesis 1 and 2 as a poem, not to be taken literally. And my question is, what happens when you read the rest of the Bible? What happens when a man gets swallowed by a fish, the sun stands still, loaves and fishes are multiplied, water turns into wine, and a man gets up on Sunday morning out of the grave? Yeah, how do you deal with all that? The word for day in Genesis 1 and 2 is yom, Y-O-M. It's used 500 times in the Old Testament. Every time it means a 24-hour day. The only exception is the day of the Lord, which any student of prophecy knows is a very long period of time. 
But the writer of Genesis is, is redundant. Not only does he tell us a day, he says morning came and evening followed each day. Amazing how he kind of nails that down. In Exodus, when Moses received the Ten Commandments, six days you shall work and you'll rest on the seventh. Why? Because God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. The writer of Genesis is hammering away at this idea that this was literal and historical 24-hour time periods. I think one of the greatest proofs is how the New Testament people interpreted the Old Testament. The Old Testament was the Bible they read. So Jesus said, have you never read that God made them in the beginning? He made them male and female. He didn't say they evolved. He said he made them male and female. Paul told Timothy, Adam was formed first, then Eve. First Corinthians says we all die in Adam and, and, and we'll all rise in Christ. They all read it historically. So Bible interpretation, very important. The second reason I believe in a literal creation is evolutionary theory. It's only a theory. Now, when I was a kid, that's what you would read, evolutionary theory. Now they just say evolution. They just, it's fact, okay? I would not believe in evolution even if I were an atheist. Seriously. If I was out drinking and carousing and making a lot of money, I still wouldn't believe in evolution. Now, here's where you can't get intimidated by quote-unquote smart people. Sometimes common sense is the best sense, and sometimes things just don't pass the eye test. Like when I look at a giraffe, I can't believe his neck grew because he had to get food that was far above him over time. Now, you're probably thinking, boy, this preacher's really dumb. He doesn't know. That's not really what they believe. Listen, I've read almost everything on evolution you can read. I know about the intermediate species. I know all those things. But it doesn't pass the eye test. Larry King, the reason he was a great talk show host is because he was great at reduction. He had seven people from various forms of life, pastors and philosophers and all, on a panel one time talking about creation versus evolution. He turns to John MacArthur, a pastor, and he says, John, the world 10,000 years old? Right to the heart, right? Next question, he turns to the evolution. He said, if we came to monkeys, why are there still monkeys? It's a great question, right? It doesn't pass the eye test. Now, Bertrand Russell, in his essay, Why I'm Not a Christian, said, I don't believe in the God of creation. I believe the universe was always there. You believe God was always there, and it's a draw. And he's right in some ways. However, I feel like we have far more evidence. Strict Darwinian theory, and you can look at your kids' high school textbooks, evolution is a blind and cruel process whereby complex things arose from a simple source. If you think I'm being unfair or unkind to that point of view, George Gaylord Simpson uh, is a Harvard paleontologist. Listen to what he said about natural selection, the agent of evolution. Man is the result of a purposeless and natural process that never had him in mind. Never had you or me in mind. Hence Richard Dawkins' famous book, The Blind Watchmaker. Dawkins said natural selection is the blind watchmaker, blind because it does not see ahead, does not plan consequences, has no purpose in view, yet the results of natural selection overwhelmingly oppress us with appearance of design 
as if by a manifest or master watchman impress us with the illusion of design and planning. It's only illusion, folks. His second chapter on bats, I would become a Christian. He's a zoologist. The, the intricacy of bats, I know they're ugly. Uh, my son and I were in Kenya, and he went into one of those latrine pits. You ever go on the mission field? It's just a hole. And he was doing number one, and a bat flew out. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, can you imagine if a lady was in there and that happened? It'd be like the end of the missions trip. <laughs> as ugly as bats are, they might be the most intricate thing in the universe. Dawkins said different groups of bats use sonar in radically different ways that they seem to have invented it separately and independently from just one another, just as the British, Germans, and Americans all independently developed radar. He went on to say a bat is a machine whose internal electronics are so wired up that its wing muscles cause it to hone in on insects as an unconscious guided missile hones in on an airplane, and it's just not bats, guys, it's bees. I've written about bees. They shouldn't be able to fly. They pollinate a third of our food. Uh, one scientist said they are the master mathematicians of the universe. They, they could have designed the, their honeycomb any other way, but they desired it in a shape to maximize honey. I could go on and on about bees, on and on about sea creatures. Uh, every principle down the line and everything in our universe that we can observe has this principle. And yet Dawkins, when he writes his chapter on bats, gives you the intricacy of bats, and in a paragraph about this big says, it's all an illusion, and it all happened by chance. There was no purpose, and there was no design. Now you might say, well, Pastor Bob, I don't want to be ignorant, but you're a pastor, you're a generalist, and Richard Dawkins went to Oxford. Uh, these guys are really, really smart. And what I want to tell you is there are really, really smart people on the other side, too. I just read about Mick Jagger. He read Dawkins, and it affirmed his atheism. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, does he know about Philip Johnson? Philip Johnson wrote Darwin on trial. Philip Johnson graduated number one, University of Chicago, one of the most prestigious universities in the United States, number one at Berkeley, number one in law school. He's one of the most brilliant minds on the earth. I can get down the list. Smart people on both sides. But I think John MacArthur nailed it when he said it's really a religious idea. John MacArthur, he's pastor for 50 years, leads a fabulous seminary. He said, to put it simply, evolution was invented in order to eliminate the God of Genesis and thereby the lawgiver and obliterate the inviability of his law. Evolution is simply the latest means our fallen race has devised in order to suppress our innate knowledge and the biblical testimony that there is a God and that we are accountable to him. By embracing evolution, modern society aims to do away with morality, responsibility, and guilt. Society has embraced evolution with such enthusiasm because people imagine that it eliminates the judge and leaves them free to do whatever they want without guilt and without consequence. Dawkins took out an ad on a bus all over London that said, do whatever you want, you don't need to feel guilty anymore, i.e. there's no lawgiver. 
When people look at a holocaust, a pogrom, uh, you know, some of the horrific genocides that happen around the world, one of the phrases someone came up with is, once you remove God, anything's possible. The evolutionary lie is so pointedly anti-ethical to Christian truth that it would seem unthinkable for evangelical Christians to compromise with evolutionary science, MacArthur said, in any degree. But during the past century and a half of evolutionary propaganda, evolutionists have remarkable success in getting evangelicals to meet them halfway. 40% of the church. Remarkably, many modern evangelicals, perhaps it would be even fair to say most people who call themselves evangelicals, have already been convinced that the Genesis account of creation is not a true historical record. Thus, they have not only capitulated to evolutionary doctrine as its starting point, they have also embraced a view that undermines the view of Scripture as its starting point. And that's why the view of theistic evolution is the one that drives me mad the most. First of all, I don't like anything that's a hybrid. I don't understand hybrids. Uh, if you have a Cadillac truck, God bless you, it's a, I'm sure it's a wonderful car. But when I look at a Cadillac truck, I'm like, geez, I either want a Cadillac or I want a truck. I don't want a Cadillac truck. It's like Wrigley Field. I think it's the best ballpark I've ever been to. It's 100 years old. Uh, all ballparks look like that. Then they built multi-purpose stadiums to play football and baseball. And guess what they're doing now? Building all standalone baseball and football fields again. Hybrids never give you the, the best of anything. And this idea that God guided Evolution makes no sense because the leading evolutionaries are saying we were never in mind. It's a blind and cruel process. Which leads to my third point, man. I believe in a literal view of Genesis because of a high view of man. God made us, not only made us, he made us in his image, in his likeness. That's been the impetus of human rights through the history of the world. Tim Keller said, you've got to believe in evolution of some sort. You've got to believe that God's used naturalist selection in some way. Now, I love Tim Keller. We sell all his books. I read all his stuff. I think he's wrong. Here's why I think he's wrong. He believes in a literal Adam and Eve. So in theistic evolution, it's like man evolved, and then God said, you too, you're Adam and Eve. Of course, the Bible says God took Eve out of Adam. So Keller says, no, 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 I don't believe that. I believe in evolution, and then I believe God took a garden and there's a literal Adam and Eve. Now, here's the problem I have with that. Am I supposed to interpret the first 24 verses of Genesis as a metaphor or a poem, and then all of a sudden, at verse 25, switch to literal? And if I am, there's no way to interpret the Bible that way. It would be totally impossible and the reason Keller has to do this is because he's a great teacher of the Bible. He, he believes in the doctrines of the Reformation. He believes that for, we all died in Adam, therefore we all live in Christ. He believes in the doctrine of grace. He believes in total depravity. He believes in everything that happened in a garden. And it's the garden and the cross that bring us to the great doctrines of the church. And we can't pick and choose. Original sin, total depravity, justification by faith, salvation, all come from the historical record of Genesis 1-2. Jesus is the second Adam. 
And my fourth point is Paul, Jesus, and church history. I already told you what Paul believed and some of the other quotes. Uh, Peter and Zacharias said, God has given us the prophets since the world began. Um, the Old Testament, I haven't seen the 4.6 billion year old prophet, okay? So, you know, I believe Abel was a prophet. Peter said, fishermen, right? He's a fisherman, so don't be intimidated by these scientists. Peter said, scoffers will come in the last days, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were since creation. Like, in other words, God put the whole thing on auto autopilot. Yeah, God started it, and the whole thing's moving along. Here's the problem with that. Peter said, this would be the mark of the last days. Falling asleep. Blinded in the light. Remember the parable about the virgins? They didn't have their lamps lit. They didn't have oil. See, the idea is if God started this process eons ago, then the second com coming is eons away. And now you get into the other glorious doctrine, the, the coming of Jesus Christ. And we do all this to be relevant. We do all this to be in good standing with the communities around us. But he, here's the truth. God didn't put the world on autopilot. See, what Scripture revealed is not only the God who created all things and a Christ who created all things, but a God and a Christ who wanted to be involved in creation. That's the glorious truth. In Job chapter 31, God appears to Job out of the whirlwind. He said, Job, I'm going to speak to you and you answer to me. And God says this to Job, look now at the behemoth, which I made. He didn't evolve. I made him along with you. He eats grass like an ox. See now his strength is in his hips, his powers in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze. His rib like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Surely the mountains yield food for him. And all the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees in a cavern of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident that the Jordan gushes in his mouth, though he takes it in his eyes, or one pierces his nose with a snare. God said, I designed the whole ecosystem. And it works, and it's glorious. He said this to Job, will the wild ox serve you? Will he bed your manger? Can you bind the wild ox and the furrow with ropes? Or will he plow the valleys behind you? Will you trust him because his strength is great? Or will you leave your labor to him? Will you trust him to bring home your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? And then God talks about the ostrich. He said, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But her wings and pinions are not like the kindly storks. For she leaves her eggs on the ground and she warms them in the dust. She forgets that a that a foot may crush them or that a beast may break them. She treats her young harshly as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain, without concern. Why? Because God deprived her of wisdom and he didn't endow her with understanding. But when she lifts herself on high, on high she scorns the horse and the rider. You know what God's saying? God's saying the stork, yeah, you look at her and you think she's genetically... Uh, 
should be re-engineered because she doesn't, she's not a good mom. She doesn't take after her prey. But boy, when she runs, she gives me pleasure. She scorns the horse and the rider because I made her that way. And we find out a God not only who made creation, but he enjoys creation in places where no one ever sees it. And no one benefits by God. And he designed everything for a purpose and everything fits together. And day by day at other forced speech, God makes every daisy, every flower, every sunset. Jeremiah, while you were in the womb, I fit you and I formed you. Every human being crafted by God. The only thing us fathers on Father's Day contributed was a casing to our kids. God gave them DNA. God gave them a soul. God gave them a spirit. God gave them intelligence and creativity and crafted a life for them. The painter of the heavens the one who plums the depths of the seas. God had man singularly in mind in his creation. Everything was for our vantage point. The Grand Canyon is not only the grandest canyon on earth, it's the grandest, listen to this, observable canyon in the universe. It was designed to be observed. We have the greatest vantage point in the solar system. We were totally in God's mind. We were the delight. And coming back to Colossians, understanding all this, it says Jesus is holding this all together by the word of his power. He's holding the entire creation together. This is the, the, the mystery of godliness in a manger. He's holding the world together. Falling asleep on the Sea of Galilee, he's holding the world together. Dying on a cross while people are pulling out his beard and spitting on him, he's holding the world together. In a tomb, he's holding the world together. And if he would ever release it, it would all disappear. Again, that amazing fisherman who never had an education, in 2 Peter 3.10 said, the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, when the heavens and the earth will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. You know what Peter's describing there? A nuclear explosion. See, Jesus is the one who's holding the world together. Hebrews 11.3 says, we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God, that everything that's visible was made by things that are not visible. They were made out of atoms. Everything you see now is made out of invisible things, atoms. Atoms are 99.9, as far as you can go, 99999, empty. And then there's protons and neutrons in the nucleus of an atom. Now, most of you have heard this. Protons are positively charged, which means they should repel, but they connect to one another. They, they adhere in the atom. Now, this has puzzled scientists for years, and so they came up with a term in 1971 of why this happens, and they call it atomic glue. Uh, I think Discovery Magazine ran an article, The Glue That Holds the World Together, This Atomic Glue. Now, this is what fascinates me. Whenever Christians and atheists argue or debate, atheists say that we always invoke what they call the God of the gaps. You know what that is? The God of the gaps is whenever we get to a thing we don't understand, we just say, God did it. And they're like, well, that's all you're doing is invoking the God of the gaps. So we need evidence. But nobody ever talks about the evolution of the gaps. And this is one of these places. Evolution cannot tell us, science cannot tell us why these protons stay connected. But the Bible just told you 
The Bible's not a science book, but it has to be scientifically correct. Jesus is the glue that's holding it together. Now, they have fancy terms today like quarks and particle physics. One person called it the God particle. The Bible says Jesus is holding the world together by the word of his power. Now, here's the good news. Do you ever feel like you were on the verge of losing it? You know, we say things like, oh, my world's coming apart at the seams. I can't control things anymore. If Christ is above all things, if he's above creation, if he's holding everything together with the word of his power, do you think he can hold your life together? I think he can. I think if he can hold the universe together, he can be your atomic glue. The beautiful thing is he loves you. He said, come to me, all of those who are weary and heavy laden. He's not a physical law. He's a person. All you who are thirsty, all you who are weary, I will give you rest. And we have this long view of drug addicts who have been clean and prostitutes made whole, and marriages put together and lives put together. The problem is he has to be the center. He's got to be the center. Jesus said, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you'll bear much fruit. He's got to be the center of our decisions, the center of our choices, the center of our relationships. He has to be the center. And when he's the center, he's the glue that keeps everything together. Bertrand Russell was asked, what happens if you die and you were wrong? What would you tell God? And he would say, you didn't give me enough evidence. I think God has given us profound amount of evidence. Uh, we ordered a bunch of J. Warner Wallace's books, God's Crime Scene. God's left us an amazing crime scene. He's a CSI investigator, and the book is an easy read and has pictures, and it walks you through and uh, kind of reduces all this kind of stuff to a normal level. Um, look up on the screen. This is from the latest book that I, I have talking about uh, shapes and sizes. Uh, these are marine animals that can only be seen with a microscope. Looks like somebody designed it, doesn't it? No colors the same, no shapes the same. They're starting to find these patterns all through nature. Butterflies and leopards, uh, systematic, um, mathematical. And the more we go, the more we discover. I talked about the moon. I talked about so many things today. The God of creation loves us more than anything he's created. We are the apple of his eye. And until we live in eternity for a very long time, and that's probably a contradiction of terms, I don't think we'll ever figure out what that means, made in his image. So what I want to do, and I want to leave that on the screen because it's so glorious, I want to move right into communion. Um, some people will be moving around because they're going to serve you with elements. And I thought, what a glorious day as we begin the book of Colossians to celebrate communion together. Pastor Shem will play for us. 1 Corinthians 11 says that this is a time where we examine ourselves, where we take inventory of our lives.